Welcome back to From the Front Row, brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. I'm your host, Ian Bukta, but today we are going to be hearing an interview with our co-producer, Haley Boudreaux, in our 40 Under 40 series, where we interview some of the DeBeaumont Foundation's 40 Under 40 in public health around the country. This week, Haley sat down with Dr. Joseph Cantor, Assistant State Health Officer at Louisiana Department of Health and a Physician of Emergency Medicine. Dr. Cantor pushed for reforms to reduce stigma and save lives in New Orleans to combat the opioid crisis. He built a coalition and saw a bill for needle service programs pass the City Council of New Orleans. Work like his in harm reduction has saved countless lives. His work on harm reduction, the opioid crisis, and pushing through public policy is really quite interesting. I turn it over now to Haley's interview with Dr. Joseph Cantor. This is Dr. Joe Cantor. I am Assistant State Health Officer and uh, Medical Director for the Greater New Orleans Region for the Louisiana Department of Health. Great. Well, welcome. And you were recently named as part of the DeBoma 40 Under 40. Can you briefly describe the work that contributed to this great honor? Well, thank you for saying that. It is a incredibly humbling honor. <laughs> I did have one colleague remark to me, congratulations on being under 40. And so that <laughs> was nice as well. But it, it was a big shock and a big honor. I couldn't be more humbled by it. And I can tell a little bit about my path into, into where I am now. I um, got interested in health sciences way back. I had taken some time after high school before college to travel. And my travels took me uh, to the Middle East and I was in Israel. And this was around the year 2000 when the Intifada broke out. So I happened to be there during that time. And my plans were just to travel around, maybe teach some English, have a good time. But the Intifada broke out and the country needed medics really quickly because there were um, you know, a lot of violence going on. And so they put out a, a call, an emergency call for medics and offered free paramedic training. And so I took them up on that and I spent the rest of the year working as a paramedic for an agency called Magendavita Dome, which was uh, essentially the Israeli Red Cross. And I learned a few things about myself through that process. I found out that I was, I was pretty good under stressful situations and that was something um, I didn't really know before. And I found some interesting things about teamwork and the power of healing. It, this was a very political tense time over there and a lot of violence and um, tensions were high. And the teams that we had were often interdisciplinary and, and the folks were very diverse on the team, but with very different viewpoints and Arabs and Israelis and so forth. But it became very apparent that healing transcended that. It clearly transcended that. And, and on our little paramedic team, we were able to get a lot of good work done. And it meant a lot to me because uh, I'd never been part of a, of a team like that before. And I took away just how awesome, you know, working in the health field was because healing is something that everyone can relate to. So I, I went back, finished college, went to medical school in New Orleans. And in the middle, actually right in the beginning of medical school is when Hurricane Katrina. And that completely changed the experience of my medical school and residency training. We were in the middle of a rebuilding effort. And the entire city was devastated, was being rebuilt. And people were asking questions, how do you do that? How do you rebuild a health system uh, in the context of rebuilding the rest of the city? Not only how do you do that, but how do you rebuild the health system? What type of health system do you rebuild? Uh, and it's an opportunity to improve upon what in a lot of ways was an antiquated system in New Orleans. And that really shaped my medical training. I decided to get a public health degree in the middle of medical school because you know, the issues that we were dealing with were cut so deeply across 
all those disciples. And uh, I went into residency in emergency medicine in New Orleans and uh, you know, essentially was a safety net ER, public ER. And, you know, the, the issues that we dealt with were issues that were public health issues. Uh, we dealt with homelessness. We dealt with addiction. We dealt with, you know, personal violence, urban violence, sexual assault. We dealt with high utilizers or, or frequent flyers, some folks call them, but people who have really fallen through the cracks of the health system. Those type of interventions required public health interventions. And so we partnered with the health department on those. And through that work, I, I ended up joining the health department. After I graduated, I served as a medical director. I worked in healthcare for the homeless clinic that the health department ran, which was a federally qualified health center. Uh, and then later I was asked to lead the department as director. But I, I look back on the experience of being in the ER and uh, you know, one of the lessons that I, I take away from that is you know, when you're working with folks who are marginalized or vulnerable or have fallen through crack, you know, if you wait for people to come to you in the clinic, you're going to be waiting an awfully long time because some folks are not going to make it there. And that's really where a lot of attention has to be placed. You know, I, I recognize that you really have to meet people on their own terms where they are mm -hmm. and that public health cannot be a destination service. We have to be out there in the community. That's the only way that we're going to connect with and be able to serve the population that we're trying to. Wow. You have such a fascinating path to public health and you're correct. Public health is meeting people where they're at. So thank you for saying that. I, I did see a quote from you that said you're aiming to build partnerships, not just with the public health professionals and the medical community, but also within politics, criminal justice, and other realms. Can you give me some more examples of how you've done that? Sure. You know, through our work in New Orleans, both with the City of New Orleans Health Department and the State of Louisiana Health Department, one of the things that public health practitioners have to recognize is there's real limits to what our reach can be if we're acting by ourselves. And there are very obvious financial limits. We're typically underfunded. You know, show me one public health agency that doesn't doesn't feel that way, um, <laughs> and I might ask them for hiring. But you know. Typically resource limited, and we're typically, you know, housed behind walls in, in offices, in, in department headquarters, and that really limits our reach. You know, for us to be effective in reaching the people that we need to reach, we're going to have to find partners. That is the only way about it. We're going to have to partner with, for example, the educational sector, the business sector, the legal and criminal justice sector. You know, those are where people are. Those are where our patients and clients are, and they're not going to come to us on their own. We have to build partnerships with organizations that, that work in those fields that are not traditionally thought of as, as public health agencies or, or partnerships, and you know, that will serve us in a number of ways. We'll be able to reach our folks. We'll have more resources. We'll have a greater spread. And for those agencies, you know, helping their clients live healthier lives, for example, helping a school develop a healthy curriculum or empower their own students to feel well, to be physically and mentally healthier, will help that school achieve what they're trying to do anyway. So it's really a win-win. And that's one of the challenges in public health now is how to broker those arrangements. How do you make the pitch? How do you convince partners in other sectors that, that we need their partnership, but they need our partnership too? Mm -hmm. One example in New Orleans is this agency that we're involved with called 504 HealthNet. 504 is the area code of New Orleans, and it's kind of an um, umbrella group of all the, the main safety net and uh, open access clinics in town. And they were, we were approached by 
some of the hospitality industry players and folks that run big hotels. You know, tourism is big business in New Orleans and there's national hotel chains and then there's mom and pop shops and restaurants. And uh, they felt frustrated because their employees were oftentimes caught in the middle uh, with healthcare coverage. They oftentimes you know, made too much money to qualify for Medicaid, but they, they're priced out of some other plans and, and most of these employers didn't offer great benefits. So we ended up broking a really, really good partnership with the tourism industry here that allowed us to hire a group of navigators to help hospitality workers connect with clinics, get their healthcare needs met, get into preventative care um, and navigate them through that process. It was a great win for us in public health because the hospitality worker industry was not a population that we really had good ties with previously. They work you know, long, crazy hours at night. They were doing shift work. Um, they're often young. It's it's just not a population that we had much interaction with previously. So we got a whole new set of, you know, clients and people that we were touching. And for the hospitality industry, they got a healthier workforce. They got a workforce that uh, felt better about what they were doing. You know, we hope that this will lead to less, less call-ins. We hope to be able to prove to the industry that this is worth their investment as well. It's a new partnership, but we're really optimistic about it. Yeah, that's great. That's not an industry that I usually associate with working in public health, so that's wonderful. And in your work currently, you really try to reduce stigma related to addictive diseases. Um, You've even launched a very successful media campaign around this issue. Can you tell our listeners why it's important to reduce stigma and what messages did your media campaign entail? Sure. You know, one of the biggest takeaways from the opioid epidemic is that you really get the sense that the public is coming around to the idea that addiction is a medical disease. It's not a character flaw. It's not evidence of criminality. Um, it's not something that needs to be, you know, shamed. But it's a medical process, just like any other medical process, and that there are evidence-based treatments and really good evidence-based treatments out there. That sentiment hasn't always been the way, and I'll tell you, in a lot of places in the South, even more so. In New Orleans, I tell you, up until last year, we had the dubious honor of being the incarceration capital of the world. We were the most heavily incarcerated city in the most heavily incarcerated state, Louisiana, and the most heavily incarcerated country of the U.S. And that was not a good place to be. And historically, there were a lot of folks that were behind bars for issues stemming directly from addictive disorders, you know, essentially from a medical disease. Essentially, we were locking people up for medical disease. And can you imagine if we were locking people up because they had diabetes or because they had hypertension? That's how we looked at it. So we set out on a campaign to really reduce the public stigma. We wanted to make addiction something that not only was, was less stigmatized and accepted as, as a medical disease, but something that families felt comfortable talking about. Uh, we wanted we wanted a teenager in, in home to feel comfortable talking to their parents about addiction. We wanted people to feel empowered to help their loved ones not only get into treatment, but to be supportive throughout treatment. We wanted to find people that have lived experience with addiction and empower them in one way or the other, whether it's hiring them as a peer support specialist or as a volunteer counselor, but enabling those folks who really have made the journey and are well on their their recovery pathway to help others who are newer in that process. It's ongoing work now. I feel like, like a lot of the rest of the country has, that the the needle is moving on this and and we're talking about addiction in a better way now. One of the challenges is going to be, you know, it's not just opioids, there's, um, you know, a meth epidemic that's kind of coming on the heels of the opioid issue right now. And, And 10 years down the road, it's going to be something else. So we have to parlay 
the upward work into just how we talk about addiction in in general. There's been a lot of talk about the mistakes made in the past, you know, how we as a society really were inhumane in how we dealt with the crack epidemic and criminalized people, mandatory minimum sentences, very racially motivated, really horrible things. And the only thing that I can say about that is I hope we've moved past that. I hope we learned our lesson and I hope we use opioids to be able to deal with addiction in a better way going forward. And can you explain to me what is meant by less stigmatizing and more person-centered? We wanted to give addiction a face. We wanted, when people think about addiction, we, we didn't want people to think about criminals. We wanted people to think about their own family, their own loved ones, their own neighbors and roommates, because that's what the evidence shows. And the evidence shows is that addiction is, is so persuasive, you know, it really everyone knows someone whose life has been very intimately touched by it. So we were intentional about about giving addiction a very human face. Uh, and I think that goes toward, you know, the innate knowledge that, that this, is, uh, this is something that doesn't need to be stigmatized. You know, it can be embraced just like any other number of medical conditions are. So you've talked a little bit about, you know, communicating with different industries and also you did this media campaign, but how is strategic communication really important in the work that you do and your vision for the future and how can other health professionals within public health improve as a whole? One of the challenges of public health is we're in the background, kind of in the shadows, and we don't do a good job of promoting ourselves, of selling our services. Dr. Shaw, who, who runs the, the Harris County Health Department in Houston, um, has a great way of talking about this, and he frames it as an invisibility crisis. Public health is invisible because you don't recognize our successes. And the measles epidemic that, that's creeping back up now is a great example of that. And we, we eliminated a horrible disease, you know, around the year 2000. And then because, of, because we did such a good job of that, people kind of forgot the value mm-hmm. of preventative care, of, of vaccines, of very core, you know, public health 1.0 functions. And we, we have to be cognizant not to rest on our laurels, not to let up on that. I think about my time in city government, and it's challenging advocating for resources when you're going up against other city departments. And I'm going to give you an example. Everyone knows what the fire department does because right. they roll in with lights and sirens and uniforms, and they're on the news. And when they go every year to ask for funding, people make an obvious connection with what they do. It's 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 intuitive and, and easy, and that's an easy solve for them. It's harder for public health because people might not realize the improvement in, in health or quality of life that public health is responsible for. It's up to us to figure out how to sell that, how to make that apparent. If we're going to have the resources that we know we need, we got to do a better job of marketing and, and selling that. I think that's something that I'm looking for, you know, younger public health practitioners, people who are in, in school now to really do a better job of than, than people of my age are doing. You know, I think we can get better at this. I think we're going to look to um, some some fresher minds of how we can do that. Yeah, those are great points. We talk a, a lot about how location and zip code contribute to public health outcomes. Can you talk a bit about how place matters in the work that you do? Sure. When we think about place, we think a lot about disparity. And it's not enough to move the average up in whatever metric you're looking for. You have to make sure um, that each population sector, each community, each neighborhood, each individual has what they need to be enabled to live as healthy 
as they can. Yeah. In New Orleans, we talk a lot about the geographic disparity and the life expectancy, for example, in New Orleans can vary upwards of 25 years based on what zip code you're in. Mm-hmm. And we know, I wouldn't say we know, but we have a good sense of what drives that. And it's essentially social needs and the social determinants of health. It's the environments in which in which people live. And there's no question that while the experience of Hurricane Katrina here exacerbated that and, and made it more visible and, and tore some of the layers off, I think this is the reality in, in a lot of communities across the country. You know, there was a study done of one neighborhood in New Orleans uh, called Central City, which is lower income neighborhood and, and, and tends to have a lot of gun violence. And uh, so they, they did deep interviews with 300 high schoolers in middle school and high schoolers within Central City and talked about their exposure to urban violence. Uh, of these kids, really young kids, 50% of them had lost a loved one to gun violence and 20%, <laughs> one in five, had witnessed a murder themselves actually witnessed it. And really just unfathomable statistics. It's challenging because how do you how do you do public health in that type of environment when those are the facts on the ground, when when the challenges are so great, you know, how do you realistically make strides in in the areas that we work on? You know, people that are growing up in neighborhoods like that, they have a lot to overcome. (laughs) Uh, uh, And that's that's something that you know I definitely don't have a good answer to. But, uh, you know, if our work is not, not based in the community and, and not cognizant of these type of barriers, we're never going to, you know, achieve the outcomes that we're trying to. Yeah. Wow. So kind of going along with that, you know, if time and funds weren't an issue at all within public health, is there one thing that you could change? If funds were not an issue, um, I would hire, you know, a thousand community health workers. And, yeah. and put them all all across the community. I think it's a resource that's underutilized. A lot of great evidence in other parts of the world about their efficacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and particularly if you can find folks that have lived experience with whatever issue or disease process you're working on. We've found community health workers to be so, so great at connecting with people, navigating through the process, helping with the challenges and, and barriers that, to be honest, a lot of us in public health don't understand and might not relate to. So that's, that's one thing I can dream about is really doubling and tripling down on our community health worker force. Yeah, if only. That would be great. Okay, well, I have one last question for you. What is one thing you thought you knew in life but later realized you were wrong about? <laughs> the list is long and distinguished. I will say, I, of uh, my experience in public health, I learned a lot about the value of diversity. And I'll explain what I mean by that. Uh, when I was younger and, and just kind of coming out of school, you know, I think if, if someone had asked me, you know, about, about diversity, I would have said and thought that, you know, it's important to hire a diverse workforce because uh, it's important to, because it's a good value, because, because diversity is important and it's good and, and that's what we should do. I think that's really what I believe. What I have learned since then, that's all true. <laughs> I, I still believe that, but it's more mission-centric to that. It's that we're not going to be able to achieve our mission if the workforce that we employ is not reflective of the community that we're trying to serve. 
that it's, it's, it's so mission critical. And I think, I hope that big institutions, universities, businesses, everyone, you know, I, I hope that message gets out that if the workforce that is being recruited is, it does not reflect in, in really deep, substantial ways the community or the population that we're trying to impact, you're not going to be able to achieve that. That is, that's a great answer. And it's also great advice. Well, thank you, Dr. Cantor, so much for joining me today. Is there anything else that you want to add? Well, I just think it's a really exciting time to go into public health. So if there are uh, folks who are going through school right now, whether it's undergrad or graduate, you know, the sky is the limit in, in public health. It, you know, trying to improve the lives people live and, you know, reduce expenditures, re- reduce medical expenditures is, you know, the political issue of, of the day. And the answers are not in, in medicine. The answers are in, in public health. It's keeping populations and communities healthy. So it's just an exciting time to go into the field. You really feel like we're in store for a lot of great work in the coming years. A lot of innovation is really on the horizon. So I, I couldn't be more excited for folks that are about to enter the workforce. And um, New Orleans is a great place to work. I'll just give a plug right there. <laughs> great. That's awesome. Um, as myself in the middle of the semester right now, I, I needed that answer. So thank you very much. <laughs> there is light at the end of the tunnel, and it's, it's actually a really exciting field to be in. So great. good well, stuff ahead. Thank you to Dr. Joseph Cantor for being a part of this series. I thought he gave great perspective on life in addition to helping us better understand the situation on the ground in, in the effort to support people who use drugs and to destroy and to destigmatize drug use so that it can be better treated as a disease. I thought also that his perspective on communication was really quite interesting, especially for someone like me who's communication-minded, but also for anyone who's interested in public health practice, how we get the message out is important. I thought this interview was really a great way to close out the 40 Under 40 series. This is, in fact, our last interview in this series, and throughout this series we've learned some of the most inspirational young voices in public health from around the country. We couldn't have done this series without the help of the DuBomount Foundation, so thank you so much to them and for their work in public health. As for next week, we are going to start a new series on vaping. If you have heard about the ongoing outbreak in the news, if you've seen people using e-cigarettes and you want to know more about the potential health effects, or if you use e-cigarettes yourself, This upcoming series is for you. You'll have to tune in next week to see who our guest is, but they're a great guest and we are so excited to share their thoughts with you. Let us know what you thought about this interview and what you think about this series as a whole. You can find us on Facebook at the University of Iowa College of Public Health. We're on iTunes and Spotify as well as the University of Iowa College of Public Health. If you have questions or feedback for us, you can email us at cph-gradambassador at uiowa.edu. That's a lot, so I'll spell it and I'll make sure it's in the show notes as well. cph-gradambassador at uiowa.edu. If you have questions about vaping, please send them to us in the next week or so, and we'll try to get them in front of our guests. Or we'll at least get an answer for you. All right, we're out of here. This episode of From the Front Row was hosted by Haley Boudreau and produced by Ian Bukta and Haley Boudreau. It was edited by Ian Bukta. Our guest today was Dr. Joseph Cantor. 
This podcast is brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. An additional thanks goes out to the DeBeaumont Foundation for their assistance in helping to put together this series. We'll see you next week, everybody.